how did things get to this point? I wonder how many of us have ever asked that question. It's the sort of question we ask when life doesn't line up with our expectations. We expected one course, we found ourselves in another. It wouldn't surprise me if Jonah asked the same question. How did things get to this point? And you can answer the question by pointing to the chain of events. God spoke to him and called him and he went the other way. And he got on a boat. And he found himself in the worst storm of his life. And then he found himself overboard in the worst storm of his life. And certainly at that moment he expected to die in that sea because typically when you go overboard in the worst storm of your life, you wind up in a watery grave. Bones crushed by the waves, lungs filled with seawater. And then something surprising happens. He is swallowed by a fish. And that's so unusual. God must be up to something. Still not a very pleasant experience, but maybe a little bit better than the bottom of the ocean. How did I get to this point? How did things get to this place? Another way of answering the question is by looking at the motivations of Jonah's heart. Why did he run from God in the first place? And set in motion that chain of events that led to this unpleasant experience. Surely when he was a prophet doing his work in the temple in Jerusalem, near the presence of God, among his people, with his colleagues, with his community, he never expected this. And yet, somehow he goes from this place of status, influence, to a place of exile from the presence of God. How did he get to that point? We can answer the question with one word. Compassion. Or in Jonah's case, a lack of compassion. He found himself in this predicament because of his lack of compassion for the people God wanted to send him to. He didn't want God to offer mercy to his enemies. God wanted to show compassion. Jonah did not. And as he finds himself beneath the waves in the belly of this fish, Jonah's invited to reflect on the relationship, and we with him, between repentance and compassion. What is the, re the relationship with, between repentance and compassion? Will this experience of being under the waves in this creature 
cultivate something in him to turn him from his running back to God and at the same time to deal with that initial lack of compassion and help him be merciful towards his enemies. Jonah's got to learn what we need to wrestle with. Real repentance requires cultivating compassion. Real repentance requires cultivating compassion. Now, Jonah's problem is his attitude toward his enemies. He feels justified in his attitude toward his enemies, doesn't he? He is antagonistic towards the Ninevites. He understands how wicked they are. He understands, perhaps has seen evidence of, perhaps is deeply acquainted with the sorts of torture they inflict on their opponents, the nations against which they war. And he feels entirely justified in not obeying God's call to preach to them. He rationalizes his sin because they are, after all, really bad people. But in doing that, he takes God and decides he's going to put himself in a position over God, doesn't he? It's like, you know, God, you're not the one who is really qualified, maybe, <laughs> to decide whether these folks get mercy. I'm going to do that myself. You know, he doesn't say that to God, but when he runs away from God's calling on his life, that's the implication. I know better than you. Yeah, I know what you want me to do, but I know the best thing to do, and it's not what you want me to do, so I'm going to do something else. So he puts himself in a position of judge over God, and the implication is that the Ninevites don't deserve God's compassion. Right? That's what's going on with Jonah. He doesn't believe the Ninevites deserve compassion. So he just doesn't go. Just doesn't go. There's an implicit comparison there, isn't there? Between Jonah and his enemies. He wants God to be compassionate to him, doesn't he? He just doesn't want God to be compassionate to those other folks. He wants God to look favorably upon him. He just doesn't want God to look favorably upon his enemies. And so he begins to think of himself in relation to them. Poor Jonah. God calling me to do something I don't want to do. Calling me to go to people I don't want to go to. And he takes off. All because he lacks compassion. And in the process, he learns that he does not actually deserve God's compassion either. The problem is, sometimes that's a lesson you have to learn the hard way, <laughs> isn't it? So here's Jonah. He wants God to favor him. He wants God to be kind to him. He wants to hang out in the temple and be with his people and be near the, 
you know, this important place and, and do his job, but he doesn't want it to be uncomfortable. He doesn't want to have to go anywhere. He doesn't want to have to sacrifice anything. And he sure doesn't want to have to show kindness to people who are horrifying to him. And yet that's what God calls him to do. And in the process, he discovers that God really doesn't owe him anything. And if you've ever had to learn that lesson, it's a hard lesson to learn, isn't it? For Jonah, it means a very real downward journey. If you notice, reading through the first couple of chapters, uh, the uh, person who finally wrote all this down liked to talk about how Jonah goes down. He went down to Joppa. He went down to the bottom of the ship. He went overboard and then down into the sea and he just keeps going down and down and down and it's a narrative portrayal of his relationship to God isn't it he's just going further and further and further away down 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 and as he goes down into the waves into the deep it begins to dawn on him that he doesn't deserve to live, does he? I mean, here he is, God's prophet, and he disobeys God, and the consequence is getting thrown into the ocean or the sea in the middle of a storm, and he realizes, you know what? This is what I get. This is what I deserve. This is what God does to his enemies, isn't it? At least that's what Jonah is beginning to realize. That's what the enemies deserve even if God is merciful. And that's the whole point of mercy, isn't it? Not getting what you deserve. One of the ways the uh, author kind of helps us understand what's going on with Jonah is when Jonah starts praying, he begins to talk and compare himself to uh, the Egyptians when they found themselves under the waves of the Red Sea. If you read Exodus 15... Verses 3, 4, 5, 6 in that area. It sounds a lot like Jonah chapter 2. Your waves and your billows pass over me. You cast me into the heart of the seas. The floods surrounded me. And there's this image of, you know, when people put themselves against God, as the Egyptians did over and over and over again, the consequences are quite drastic. There's no life in opposition to the God of life. And it would be easy for Jonah to kind of slide into a position of superiority, wouldn't it? Feeling a lot better than the folks who are drowning in the sea right now. You know, here we are on dry land. Everything's going really well for us. Look what God did. That's great for us. Bad for them. And they deserved it. And that comparison makes it easy to think God owes us something. The thing Jonah discovers in the belly of that beast under the waves is that God owes him nothing. It doesn't matter that he's a prophet. It doesn't matter that he's an Israelite. The years of service, years of faithfulness, Years of ministry matter nothing. God owes him nothing. 
And really, Jonah deserves death. Because after all, the wages of sin is death. And yet in the middle of all that, God is merciful to Jonah. God is merciful to him by preserving his life with that fish. God is merciful to him by giving him another chance. And he begins to perceive this, that that God's posture toward him is one of compassion even when he's running from God in the completely opposite direction of his calling. That's the thing that Jonah's got to learn. He ran from God. He made himself God's enemy. He says, I don't care what you have to say. I'm going to do what I want to do. I don't care what you think about those people. I know more about it than you do. My judgment is wiser than yours. And I'm going to play this out the way I want to play it out. And in doing so, he set himself against the sovereign Lord of all things. And he realized when he did that, he deserves judgment, condemnation, and death. And yet, in the middle of what he deserved, he discovered God was compassionate to him. And merciful. And kind. God shows Jonah grace and rescues him despite his running. And opens a path for repentance, doesn't he? But in order to really embody that repentance, Jonah is going to need to begin to embody that compassion, isn't he? Because after all, real repentance requires cultivating compassion. To run from God, to run away from His will, to run away from His design, is to say, I don't want to embody your character. Compassion toward enemies. And then Jonah finds himself in the place of the enemy and discovers how significant it is to receive God's compassion. If that compassion is a means of grace, it's a means of grace toward repentance. But repentance doesn't say, hey, please forgive me, and then proceed to continue in its way. Repentance means turning from one way to the other. And in Jonah's case, that means no compassion to compassion. For the people that he hates and detests and probably fears, real repentance requires cultivating compassion. The question is whether Jonah is repentant or not. And the text creates kind of a tension there, doesn't it? The the text kind of creates this this tension because you've got Jonah, you know, here I am, I'm distressed, and I call out to God, and in the belly of Sheol, Sheol in the Hebrew Bible is the place of the dead, right? He's like, I'm as good as dead. I'm being crushed by the way. And imagine what it would be like for Jonah in that moment when he goes over the side of the ship and he lands 
you know, not in calm seas, but probably caught by a wave, and all of a sudden his body's thrown this way and his body's thrown that way. And if you've ever been in maybe in the Gulf and you've kind of felt maybe a little bit of an undertone, I need to get out of here before this gets really bad, and all of a sudden you're not in control of which way your body's going and you're, you're, you're thrown this way and you're thrown that way, and it's, a, it's kind of scary. Imagine what it would be like for this guy in the middle of the sea with no land in sight, dark rain, wind, thunder, lightning, and the ship is going away, and he's stuck, and his lungs begin to fill with water, and he goes down, 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 and he thinks, Sheol is my destination. Death is where I'm going. And all of a sudden, he finds himself alive. And he cries out to God in the midst of this distress, and God hears him. You heard my voice. Verse 2. You cast me in. And notice, the one, who's the one who throws Jonah in here? <laughs> the sailors did it, but Jonah says God was really up to this one. <laughs> you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. Just like you've done the people who oppressed your people in the past. And I said, I'm driven away from your sight. How shall I look on you again? And Jonah, you know, it's kind of, I'm driven away from your sight, but you ran first. <laughs> You know, let's think about the progress here. Verse 4, I'm driven away from your sight. How shall I look again on your holy temple? And that's the thing he wants, isn't it? The temple is the place of God's presence. He says, I just want to be back in your presence. And you begin to think, maybe this guy is repentant. Maybe he realizes that he shouldn't have run from God. And he knows where he's supposed to be. He knows he's supposed to be focused on the presence of God and cultivating that deep relationship in God's presence so that he can embody God's character and be God's minister and agent and missionary in the world. How shall I look again upon your holy temple as the waters close in over me, the deep surrounds me, weeds wrap around my head at the root of the mountains? I went down to the land, verse 8, whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit. And there's Jonah's experience of God's compassion. I thought it was dead meat. And you preserve my life. I deserve to die. And you were merciful to me. I made myself your enemy. I set my heart against you. I declared that I knew better than you. And as my life was ebbing away, my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Now, there's some clues in the text that while Jonah seems repentant, he's still got some tension and conflict going on here. First of all, pay attention to how many times he refers to himself. You may want to go home and just kind of get a little pencil and circle, I, me, and my, and how many times he mentions those words. It happens over and over and over again. His focus is very much on himself. He sounds very pious. He sounds very religious. He almost sounds repentant, but it's this self-focused kind of thing. I've gone down. I'm about to die. I'm driven away. How shall I look again? Nothing like, you were right, God. <laughs> Nothing like you're sovereign and your wisdom is over all things. It's, it's, I'm the one who's in trouble here and I'm suffering. And his focus is on himself and self-preservation. And that's a hint to us that he's not yet quite, not quite yet filled with a heart of compassion. 
Like he definitely wants to preserve himself, but the journey to repentance maybe is still in progress. Another sign that Jonah hasn't quite discovered what real repentance means is the way he begins to compare himself with sinners. Take a look at uh, verse 8. Those who worship vain idols forsake their true loyalty. Right? Idol worshipers are not true. And that's right. right? In principle, that's, he's absolutely right. But he says it and then compares it to himself. Those who worship vain idols forsake their true loyalty, but I, I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. And what's striking about that passage is we've already met some idol worshipers, haven't we? Remember all those guys on the ship? And they were praying initially to their gods, and nothing happened. They're pagans. They're not Israelites. They're not part of the people of God. They're pagans. They're worshiping idols. They're praying to their gods. They find their gods can't do anything for them. And then by the end of the first chapter, they pray to Jonah's God and make vows to him and begin to worship him. Jonah, in chapter 1, never prays. He doesn't have a word of thanksgiving for God. And so there's this irony that he's kind of saying, hey, look at those idol worshipers, how false they are. And look at me, how great I am. I'm one of your people, and I'll worship you with thanksgiving. When in reality, he's running from God while pagans are honoring God. <laughs> Who does this guy think he is? He knows repentance matters, but he's not there yet. There is this tension in his life where he wants to be in the presence of God. He wants things to, he, want, he wants to do what's right, but he has not yet been able to take the focus off of himself and put it on his God. He hasn't repented. He hasn't turned from his running. He just wants to save his skin. And he really just wants things to be back the way they were, doesn't he? A lot of times when we ask that question, how did things get to this point? We're saying, I liked it <laughs> a couple of years ago when I lived there or when I was doing this or when things were happening this way or I had that job or my kids were involved in this thing or my marriage was healthy. You know, so many, we're kind of like, you know, God, why can't things be the way they were? That's Jonah's attitude. I just wish I was back in Jerusalem at the temple. And we ask this, how do I get to this point? And we're wishing things were the way they used to be. It's a sign, it's a red flag, it's a diagnostic that our hearts aren't, have not yet been given to real repentance. Because we'd rather go backward than forward. Repentance says, Lord, I know where I am. I'm here. I confess that. My expectations aren't lining up with what, what's happening, but I trust You. I'm not going to think I know better than You know. I'm not going to think I should be back over there instead of here. I'm going to trust You. I give myself to what you want. I'm not going to compare myself to other people and their life. I'm not going to try to reverse the course of things. 
going to run headlong after you into your calling. He just wants things to go back to the way they were. Which means he still hasn't really made peace with God. Peace with God. That's something that comes up often enough in the New Testament, doesn't it? When I read Jonah, I can't help but think of Romans. Because Jonah is not at peace with God, is he? (laughs) He's made himself God's enemy. He's discovered that even though he's a prophet, he's also a sinner. And I can't help but think of what Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, verse 6 and following. While we were still weak, I can identify with that. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone might actually dare to die. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more surely then, now that we have been justified by His blood, we will be saved through Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Much more surely, having been reconciled, will we be saved by His life. Jonah needs reconciliation with God, doesn't he? I mean, that's the core issue. Things are not, there is enmity. (laughs) There is distance between Jonah and his God. He's trying to start sorting things out. He's praying, he's talking to God at least. But they are not reconciled yet. Jonah's heart is not surrendered. When I read this, I think, you know, I mean, this is what he needs. He needs to see how he has made himself, how he has taken the posture of opposition toward God. And we don't like to read, I mean, we don't like to take that, we don't like it when Scripture shines light on that, do we? I think, I think, I think that's why Paul uses the language he does, actually. He starts out with a word maybe we can identify with while we're still weak. We may not like like to admit we're weak, but at times, yeah, I need help. Don't always have it all together. I'm human. We're weak. We're frail. We 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 can admit that we're weak without admitting that we're enemies of God, right? And so Paul starts out, while we were weak, at the right time, God sent Jesus. And he died for us. But that's not enough. (laughs) So he goes on to this next word. While we were sinners, God showed his love. Christ died for us. You know, sinners, that's worse than weak. You can be weak and not be a rebel. You can just be, you know, having a rough day. (laughs) Sinners, I mean, that's a little bit more serious, isn't it, God? And but we're good Christians and we know that we're sinners, and so we can we can we can handle that language, right? Yep, I'm a sinner. I need grace, saved by, sinner saved by grace. And we can kind of handle that. And so, you know, Paul's easing us along. You're weak. Not only are you weak, you're a sinner. God shows up when you're weak. He also shows up when you're a sinner. We get to that third word, 
That's the hard one, isn't it? While we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. Number two, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Number three, while we were enemies. I don't know about you, but I rarely think of myself as one of God's former enemies. I'll acknowledge sin. You know, we'll talk about it. Yeah. We'll talk confession. We'll confess our sins. We'll be honest about that. But this idea of enemy, I mean, that's, that's, that's taking it to a new level, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's a serious accusation, God. But what Paul is trying to help us realize is that's the posture we take towards God when we refuse to surrender to Him. You know, and you can take all those enemies of God you know, just take your Old Testament and line it up. Egyptians, Babylonians, Assyrians, Ninevites. Capital city of Assyria. They're the enemies of God. They are, not us. We're the people of God, right? And what Jonah has to realize is that he deserves nothing more from God than the Ninevites do. And brothers and sisters, he is inviting us to consider the question that we deserve nothing more from God anyone else I deserve nothing from him nothing and when I realize that when I realize that I deserve his favor no more listen just get ready for this when I begin to realize that I deserve his favor no more than a soldier of, of ISIS. Because if you want to understand the modern-day equivalent of the Ninevites, think ISIS. And I don't even like to say it. In fact, I, like, I almost just didn't just now. Because <laughs> I, don't, I don't even want to say it. It's that hard for us to deal with it. I don't deserve anything more. And I want to say, you know, Lord, I've given my life for you. I'm moving all over the place for you. I'm going where I'm told for you. I'm packing up my stuff and taking my family here and, 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 and we're, we're sold out for this thing. We're on mission. We're committed. And it's so easy to think, I deserve something from God. He owes me something. God says, not a, not, you haven't figured it out yet, O'Reilly. <laughs> you deserve nothing. And that's what makes it Grace. Jesus died for the ungodly, not for people who need him. There are not for people who don't need him, not for people who think they don't need him. You know, there's this Jesus says to his people who are antagonistic to him in the Gospels, I didn't come for the healthy, came for the sick. And as long as you think you that God owes you something, you haven't yet figured out that you're sick. I'm gonna, I'll be honest with you. I, <laughs> I'm, I am thoroughly enjoying this Jonah sermon series. It's intellectually challenging. Uh, it's an opportunity to learn some things. 
There's stuff going on in these four chapters that I've discovered that never crossed my mind before a few months ago. And it may be the most gut-wrenching sermon series I've ever had to, had to write. Because the Lord <laughs> has brought me face to face with this deep reality that He owes me nothing. Nothing. And that's almost impossible to stomach. Especially if you're a can-do kind of guy. I got this. I can handle it. Sort it out. Trust me. It's okay. That's what our culture says a real man does. And then in that, we invite ourselves, we, we commit ourselves, we are invited to thoroughgoing self-confidence. And if we have confidence in ourselves, shouldn't God have confidence in us? And shouldn't He owe us something? Brothers and sisters, it is such a key, integral, essential moment in our spiritual journey of following Jesus to discover this brute reality that God owes us nothing except hell. So maybe we should qualify that. He does owe us something. He owes Jonah the bottom of the sea. And he owes me hell. That's what makes this good news. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. You don't reconcile with your friends, do you? You only reconcile with enemies. And the reason God has to get us to the point where we can see ourselves as His enemies is because He wants to be reconciled. His driving passion, His being is given completely to this deep, stunning passion to be reconciled to us. And He will stop at nothing to get it. He'll even die for the ungodly. So He can be reconciled to the ungodly. And when we repent, that posture of compassion that He takes toward us begin to characterize our lives. And when we see other enemies of God, instead of wishing they'd get what they deserve, perhaps we'll begin to pray for them. 
in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Who said, pray for your enemies. Not an arbitrary command, but an expression of his own heart. And we know it because when his arms were stretched on that cross, he prayed for the men who put him there. The invitation today is a new perspective on ourselves. Can we confess that when we set ourselves against God, we've made ourselves His enemies? When we run from Him, we've made ourselves His enemies. It may be the hardest thing you ever have to do. But in doing it, freedom to receive God's grace will wash over you in a way you have never experienced it before. The stunning glory of the self-giving love of the Lord Jesus Christ will wash over your heart and your mind and your soul and your life as it never has before. Because our perception of God's grace stands in proportion to our perception of our depravity. If we think we're not that bad off, Jesus doesn't have very much to offer us. If we know we deserve thoroughgoing condemnation, Jesus is infinitely beautiful to us. So perhaps as we pray, we can invite the Lord Jesus to help us see things from his perspective. To help us see ourselves as his enemies and therefore as the objects of his love. 